0: How to read the Bible for all that's worth. Um, this this is a gold mine, in my view. Um, Gordon Fee is probably one of the finest New Testament scholars in the world today. He's retired now. Douglas Stewart, Old Testament scholar, but this is a book, this is a book for people who uh, are not formal students of the Word of God. But I tell you, it's not because it's simplistic, but every one of you here could understand what's in this book. The reason why I love it, and I kept it on my shelf, still do, is that when I was going to start a new kind of, let's say I've been preaching to you 1 Thessalonians, been an epistle, and I decide, you know what, I think I'm going to do 10 or 12 psalms, pull this thing off the shelf and read his chapter on how to interpret the psalms. Or, you know what, I think I'm going to do the revelation, pull Gordon Fee off and read what he says about, interpreting apocalyptic literature, pulling it off the, What does he say about Proverbs? Remember we talked about Proverbs not being promises? This book is a goldmine for understanding how do you approach those different kinds of uh, literature that you find in the Bible. This book right here, which I'm recommending... As a matter of fact, I've got about 40 or 50 students reading this right now at the seminary. According to plan, this is a book that helps you understand... In, in a very simple, straightforward way, that the Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. How does the Bible point us to Jesus Christ? From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Um, this is a fabulous, fabulous book. So there you go. I would strongly commit to be well worth your money, time, to, to access those two things. All right. Well, friends, let's kind of pick it up where we... Were. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move now uh, much more quickly through some of the things that are here. And uh, we've got a couple ideas for what we could do this afternoon. We're just going to wait and see how it all unfolds. And certainly, again, as you have questions along the way, please, please don't hesitate to ask. Well, we've laid some foundation, huh? We've laid some foundation. We've sought to define some terms um, and, and to give you a basic definition of what hermeneutics is. Uh, we begin with our hermeneutics. When we start to apply the hermeneutics in actual study, we're doing exegesis. When we turn around and communicate that to other people, we're doing exposition. Now what I'm going to do is give to you a six-step process Of Bible study. And some of you will have had this kind of thing before. Um, I'll try and unpack each point along the way. Um, The first is what I call preparation. Preparation. Um, And by that I mean three or four specific things that are indispensable to Bible study. The first is what I call a spirit-controlled life. A spirit-controlled life. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that a person devoid of the spirit cannot understand spiritual things. That's not to say that they can't figure out what a sentence means. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Yes, an unbeliever can understand those concepts But an unbeliever will not be transformed by those concepts apart from the direct and immediate intervention of the Holy Spirit. Um, A book we don't have here to recommend because it's not quite to the point of what we're doing today is a book I uh, wrote called Spirit-Empowered Preaching, where we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit not only in the study process but in the actual preaching event as well. But what we're about to say now grows out of this idea that apart from the Holy Spirit, the Bible cannot be understood. Turn to Psalm 119. I just want to show you something that appears over and over. What, what, what do we know about Psalm 119, friends? It's Yes, it's a long one, 176 verses, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but beyond that, what do you know about the way the psalm is constructed? It constructed by the it's constructed by the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, right, join me now. Hey, no, you don't know the Hebrew alphabet? Okay, that's all right, that's all right. Every paragraph starts with a word that begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's a wonderful, wonderful, it's an acrostic. But it's a psalm that really takes up what theme, friends? The Word of God. It's a psalm about the Word of God. What I want you to notice now is woven into, uh, woven into the fabric of this psalm about the Word of God are repeated prayers on the part of the psalmist saying to God, uh, you need to teach me. And I want to draw that to your attention, friends, so that you will understand. Given everything I've said about the Word of God thus far, the Word of God all by itself will not change you. You, you can take your Bible and put it under your pillow and sleep on it every night for the rest of your life. It will do you no good. The Bible is not a magic book. This isn't a talisman for us. If you just rub it right, it'll do you good. This is a book that requires a teacher that is someone other than anyone human. He works through human teachers. But apart from the direct and immediate illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Bible cannot be understood in the sense of being transformed by it. And woven into this prayer are these repeated uh, into this psalm are these repeated exclamations of prayer begging for God to teach. And it begs the issue, if, 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 if he's asking God, open my mind, teach me, guide me, lead me, the implication is, if you don't do that, God, then I won't be able to understand it. Okay, So let me just show you a couple of these verses. Huh? Look at verse 12. Psalm 119, 12. I'm just going to zip through this thing. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me. Your statutes. You've got to teach me. Look at verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I can't understand it apart from you. 26. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Next verse. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. You notice this repeated prayer? This repeated prayer for God to teach him. Verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. Verse 64, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Verse 68, you are good and do good Teach me your statutes. Verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding. You see him begging God, begging God, you've got to teach me. You've got to lead me. You've got to illumine my mind. And I could go on and show you, friends, um, probably 10 or 12, 15 more of those kinds of prayers woven into Psalm 119. Now, what's my point here? As you think about, before you ever even open up a Bible to do the work, there is this step of preparation. Firstly, a spirit-controlled life. Personal holiness is the most important ingredient a person brings to Bible study. Sin will quench the Holy Spirit without whose illumination the understanding of spiritual truth is impaired. Now, teaching is hard work. I am not taking one step back from anything I've said thus far. But you can do everything that I've said thus far, friends, and if you're not helped by the Holy Spirit, it will all result in nothing but vanity. And so we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is the resident teacher of truth. Actually, to be more precise with you, brothers and sisters, this is not so much a step as it is an attitude that you were to carry out throughout the entire process of Bible study, okay? It means that your study, at times backbreaking laborious, should begin and continue throughout a posture of prayer. That your, your study ought to be a devotional experience. That even as you're studying, you're confessing sins that the Spirit brings to your attention. That as you're brought to see something magnificent about the Gospel, that you stop right there and respond to the truth you're learning. I say this to my students all the time. Always respond to the truth you discover immediately. Because if you don't, What happens is you learn to take in truth without responding to the truth. By and by, your life can live itself out in a way that's absolutely contradictory to the truth. Um, I get asked all the time, how could a guy like Ted Haggard rail against homosexuality while simultaneously engaging in it? When we planted our church, uh, how long has it been now, 24 years ago, something like that, it was right on the heels of the Jimmy Swaggered Jim Baker uh, catastrophe. And, and, and I got asked zillions of times, how could they preach against adultery while engaging in it? And this is exactly how it happens. The first time they come to understand the truth, and they realize that they're convicted, and they don't respond to it, the next time it gets a little easier. And the next time it gets a little easier. And the first time you get up and preach, when your life is out of step with what you're preaching, the first time you do it, boy, it's a sick feeling. It's ugly. You feel the hypocrite. Second time, not so bad. Fifth time, not so bad. Tenth time, fifteenth, twentieth time, pretty soon, no problem at all. I can get up and scream about homosexuality while engaging in it the next day. That's how it happens, friends, is that you divorce Bible study from the way you live. And so you all, in the midst of all the study that we've talked about... You are always responding to the truth you discover, whether it's in confession. I've lost track on fingers and toes of the times I've sat down to study and I've started to work through something and I've had to pick up the phone and say, Lori, I'm sorry for losing my temper at breakfast today, calling my kids. Sorry I was so impatient with you this morning at breakfast. Whatever, you know, someone... You know, someone that you've offended in the church, someone you've hurt or you've not been as kind to. You need to respond to that kind of thing immediately. You discover something about God, respond to it right there. So that I really want to cultivate a mindset that I'm as as sensitive to the Holy Spirit as I can possibly be. Because if I learn to take in truth and not respond to it, my conscience will become progressively seared. And then what happens? You become something akin to a stained glass window. What's a stained glass window? It's a religious symbol that keeps the light out, and that's what an unholy teacher is. He's a religious symbol. She's a religious symbol that keeps the light out, okay? Point two, I need to bring a right attitude toward the scriptures, a right attitude toward the scriptures. The word of God is a holy and sacred thing. Treat it with awe and respect, respect. protect its purity, never knowingly violate its sanctity. Are you still in Psalm 119? Watch, watch the way he describes the Word of God as something precious, something of great value. He says in verse 11, uh, uh, Psalm 119, mm, yeah, verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is something precious and valuable. Notice what he says in verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your words. You see the regard he has for the Bible? It's not Applebee's. Applebee's. Ryan, you went over ten minutes today. Applebee's. That's what that is. See? Not, 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 not this guy here. Um... Uh. Verse 18, we looked at it already. Open my eyes that I may behold. What? Wondrous things out of your law. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Uh, Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it. I'm eager to obey. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Man, when's the last time you heard someone get up and say, I love the word of God. How about that scene in Nehemiah, friends? They get up to read the word of God and everybody stands. You know what a beetle is? B-A-E-D-L-E. And if you come from a Scottish Presbyterian background... In Scottish Presbyterian churches, there's a church officer called a beadle. And when the service begins, the back doors open up, and a man carrying a Bible walks. As soon as the doors open up, and he comes, everybody stands. And he walks down the center aisle, steps up on the platform, comes into the pulpit, opens the Bible, lays it on the pulpit, opens the Bible, Go watch over to sit down, and then everybody sits down. Why do they do that? Honoring him? No, honoring that book. Nehemiah chapter 8, they bring the book. People stand up, and then they bow to the ground and say, Amen, Amen, and one word hasn't even been read yet. That's the kind of attitude we've got to bring to the scriptures, friends. Um, Now, you see, liberals attack this uh, head-on when they deny inspiration. When they say, up, it's not the inspired word of God. Good ideas, wonderful ideas, but it's not without error. I mean, it's inspired, I suppose, the way other kinds of religious books are inspired. Uh, Musicians get inspired, but, but, but it's not the very breath of God. They deny that head on. You know how we deny it? We sign off on a doctrinal statement that says, I believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible, and then we treat it in a careless way. In my mind, that's far, far more damaging than what the liberals do. At least the liberals are straightforward. At least you know where you stand with them. You know, we we deal with it disrespectfully, carelessly. We make mistakes with it. Um, You see, friends, what I'm talking about the way of Bible study grows out of what I believe the Bible to be. It is the ultimate inconsistency to say, I believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. In fact, I believe every single word in the Bible is without error and God-inspired. And then you say, I don't want to do the kind of Bible study art's been talking about today. That's the ultimate inconsistency. If this is the God-breathed word and every word is inspired by God, then it demands that you study it the way we've been talking about, you see, even down to the details. The authority is here. It's not a launching pad from which we get to jump in all the directions that we think are important. I tell my students all the time, please understand, you are a waiter, you are not a chef. You don't make the meal, you just get it to the table without messing it up. You're a Bible study teacher, you're not a chef, you're a waiter. You don't make the meal, you just get it to the table without messing it up. Okay? So the teachers are not entertainers. You're not a success when everybody talks about how funny you are. How much they laughed when you preached or taught. You have been a success when you have rightly understood and explained the text so that people can understand it. So you must beware of teaching, preaching, discipling, counseling in such a way that you use the Bible as a means to get people to like you. What I know is, if I'm honest with the Bible, there are going to be some Sundays where you don't like me very much. Now, when I don't want to live with that, I have to get out of the ministry. And that's not just unique to me. If I'm in this situation, if I'm in the pew, and Ryan is my pastor, then there are going to be some Sundays where Ryan has to say some things that the text say that is going to bother me, get under my skin, convict me. And I may not be very happy with Ryan that day. The word of God is a holy and sacred thing. Treat it with awe and respect. Protect its purity. Never knowingly violate its sanctity. Whether or not... And it's irrelevant to me at this point, whether you are a Calvinist. John Calvin is one of our great forefathers, and he said this, I never knowingly mishandled a text. And that's what you want to be able to say. I never tweaked it to fit something I wanted to say. Never fooled with it to fit some kind of agenda I was wanting to promote. I never knowingly mishandled a text. You're not saying I never mishandled a text. You're just saying I never did it knowingly. Okay? All right, point three, a priority for personal study. A priority for personal study. Let me just read to you a quick verse from Ezra. No doubt you You know it, but it says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That I study not to be merely a hearer, but to be a doer. So I've said it like this. The student of the scriptures must possess a willingness to apply the discovered principles of the text to his or her own life first. We've already talked about this, haven't we? But it's Paul saying to Timothy, you need to pay attention to yourself and to your doctrine. Pay attention to yourself and to your doctrine. Pay attention to yourself and your doctrine. By virtue of doing that, you will ensure the salvation of those who hear you. And for those of you who are engaged in regular teaching ministries here, my guess is probably a good percentage of you. Whether you're teaching men or women or children is irrelevant to me at this point. What you need to know is, friends, you lead by means of two tools. You know what you, know what you lead with? You lead with the Bible and you lead with your life. You lead with the Bible, and you lead with your life. And here's the point. When your life and what you teach are inconsistent, people will follow how you live. That's a scary thought for me as a pastor. If what I teach and how I live are not consistent, at the end of the day, people are going to say, what he really means is what he lives by. They're going to follow how I live. And you need to be mindful of that as you think about the people that you're teaching. So what does that mean? Again, guys, something I've hinted at earlier. It means that when you study the Bible, you don't study to get a lesson. You study to know the text. I study to know the text. And I build a lesson out of that once I've understood the text. Okay? If I study for only getting up a lesson, getting a lesson ready, then the temptation is, once I got it laid out, looks good, uh, I'm done, I think, even though I really don't know what the passage may be saying, even though I myself am not living in keeping with what that word says, so that your life should give integrity to what you're teaching, okay? And by the way, you can always know when someone isn't living this out as thoroughly as they should, because their study breeds arrogance. When people are attempting to live out what they're studying, breeds humility. Because you realize, I fall way short of the standard I have to teach. And I do, friends. I wish I could tell you in all good conscience, I always live up to the standard that I preach. But that would not be true. So what do I do? Reduce the standard of what I teach? No. But living with the discontinuity makes me humble and not arrogant. But so often what happens is people start getting excited about Bible study. They learn a couple of things, and they become filled with self-importance and arrogance, and they walk around trying to criticize everybody else who hasn't learned what they've learned. And I'll tell you something. That's a surefire indication that while they've filled their brains with some information, it has not yet affected how they live. Okay? So a priority for personal study I'm studying to know the Word of God for my own life, that my own life might reflect a greater Christ-likeness. Okay? And then four, by way of, again, this is all part of preparation, you want to bring to this business, friends, a proper understanding of the goal of Scripture. The goal of Scripture is not that you would know. The goal of Scripture is that you would grow. And know is, is, is indispensable to grow. But if you don't grow, it's not enough merely to know. And uh, we we find that so clearly, do we not, In, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The word of God is inspired, profitable, correction, teaching, training, and righteousness. So that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished for every good work. The purpose of the scriptures is life transformation. So that if my teaching is nothing but the impartation of information... Then I've not yet finished the job that the Scriptures intend for me to do. Uh, I speak a lot in the African American community, and my and my black brothers and sisters will talk about this: is you've stopped preaching and you've started meddling. You started talking about personal things. You start talking about application. You start to get pointed. Start getting specific, and that grows out of the fact that the purpose of the Bible is life change. The purpose of the Bible is not just to make your head fat, and so. <laughs> Again, when people come to understand a certain aspect of theology, a certain aspect of the Bible, and all it does is breed mean-spiritedness and a sense of superiority and arrogance, the purpose of the Bible has not yet been achieved. It's life-changed, life-changed. So the Bible study, in many ways, friends, is asking two questions. What? I'm going to knock this thing down before we're through. What? And so what? So that if your passage for teaching that week is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, you're asking, what? What does it say? What does it say? What does he mean by what he says? What does he mean? What does he mean? And then you're saying, so what? What difference ought this to make? How ought my life to be different? What does it teach me about Jesus? What does it teach me about uh, how I'm to live as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay? So these are things just by way of preparation, friends. This is before you ever open up a Bible. Okay. You want to keep these things in mind. These are far more important than several of the other things I'm going to talk to you about. All right. Any questions about these things? Sam? What, what do you think about learning school for kids that really don't comprehend a whole lot, like from really maybe six years old up to nine where minds are still occupied with other things? How would you approach that in teaching the Word of God for them? Do you mean are they in the worship service or they're in a Sunday school class? They're in a Sunday school class. Okay. Because with regard to the church service, and this may help you to understand where I would go with the answer to your question, we had all children in our service, three and up. And uh, I begin with the premise, Sam, that <clears throat> they're not going to understand everything and I don't care. But what will happen is little here, little there, little here, little there, little here, little there, little here, little there. They get to be 10, 12, 15 years old. And if, and if they have sat under a good, strong, steady teaching, preaching ministry, they're going to know a ton just by osmosis. So I don't begin with the presupposition they can't get it all. I'm happy that they can't get it all, but that doesn't bother me at all. I'm, 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 realizing, I'm realizing that as a church body, we are living together as a family and um, the fact of the matter is the, adult, the adults don't understand everything I say. <laughs> I, I don't understand everything I say, you know. Um, and uh, so we, we always have the kids in the worship service. With regard to Sunday school, Sam, I guess I would keep in mind that there are certain stages in the developmental um, uh, life of a child when their their minds are such that they absorb truth in different ways. So one of the things that I would do with with real little children, what we did with our children is we catechized our children um, because kids memorize fast. I mean, when our children were two years old and could talk, who's the first man? Adam. Who's the first woman? Eve. Who's the first murderer? Cain. Who's Who's the wisest man? Job. Who's the strongest man? Samson. I mean, we just, we, 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 uh, we did that kind of thing. And the other thing we did with little children, with our little children, is we just told Bible stories over and over and over and over and talked about how they pointed to Jesus. And then as they get a little bit older, as they get to be, oh, I don't know, huh, um, uh, eighth, ninth grade, then we start talking more doctrine. Then we start talking more theology. Um, but, but, I mean, we taught our children the alphabet using couplets, a. Taught our children A, A, there's an A, drawn A. A, A, A is for Adam who was the first man. He broke God's command and thus sin began. Memorize that little couplet. Two years old. B, B is the book which B is the book which to guide B is, is the B is the Bible which to guide us is given though written by men its words came from heaven. So we did A through. That's how our children learned their letters. A couplet for each one that communicated some kind of Bible truth. So I guess, I guess what I would say, Sam, is that in a Sunday school area, I would want to do a little bit of catechism, a little bit in a very simple way. Just they, they don't even know what they're getting. They're just reciting and memorizing. Since their minds are so much sponge, I want to exploit that opportunity. And the other thing I want to emphasize then with them is the stories of the Bible that ultimately help tell the big story of Christ. And then once they get to be junior high-ish Age. It's at that point that I want to start um, drawing them into things that are a bit more doctrinal and theological, and their minds have developed such that they can understand concepts. Six years old, six year old can't understand concepts. Their minds don't work that way yet. So I just want to tell the story over and over again, and uh, uh, because these little suckers can memorize so fast, I want to exploit that, and we did with our with our children. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, this is the kind of thing you want to be doing with your families, right? It's the kind of thing you want to be doing. We had we Bible time every night after dinner. And uh, you've got to exploit that when the kids are, 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 are small friends because they get to be 15, 16. And unless you want to be really, really, really rigid and insensitive parents, you want to let them go and do the things they want to do. You don't want to keep them from soccer. You don't want to keep them from baseball. You don't want to keep them from whatever it is they're doing. And so for all practical purposes, they get to be 14, 15, and, and uh, I may get a kiss at 6 in the morning and a kiss at 10 o'clock at night, and that may be all these days, huh? says they grow into young adulthood, we don't want to strip away those opportunities. So we exploited it when they were young. So every single night after after dinner, we'd have about 20 minutes of Bible time. We kept it fun. We kept it light. We didn't want it to be a burden or, oh, here we go again, you know. And some nights it was great. A lot of nights it was average. And some nights it just was lousy because people get distracted and, you know. And then you lose your temple. Shut up. We're going to read the Bible. You know, that, that's, that works really good, you know. It's like, we'll give up. What's the point, you know? We've all done that kind of thing. But, but we really, really strongly exploited that and tried to teach our families, um, our, our young families, Take advantage of those kind of opportunities. And so we sang together every night. Uh, We read through a portion of the Bible or we read through Pilgrim's Progress. I asked my son the other day, I said, G.B., how many times do you think we read through Pilgrim's Progress as a family? He said, oh, probably at least 20. We would read through sections of Pilgrim's Progress, read through various portions of the Bible. We'd all pray together. We'd be finished in 20 minutes, just as a regular part of our life together. Um, You'd be surprised You put kids in a church context like that, you sit them under good preaching from the time they're three, four years old. By the time they get to be 15, they're going to be so far more advanced than most adults in American evangelical churches. It's just amazing. So they can absorb a lot. I just, what I don't worry about, Sam, is I don't worry about they're not going to get it all. So what? So what? Little here, little there, little here, little there, little here, little there. Over time, God will honor his word in their lives. So, okay? The the other thing, friends, even as you think about adults, this is the reason in my mind for teaching and preaching, and and I say this for those of you who are pastors or have pastored or are pastoring, um, this is why you should preach from different literary genres because people in your congregation respond to different parts of the Bible in different ways. There are going to be people in your congregation that when you preach from the narratives, the stories, they just love it, and it's harder for them when you're in Romans. And then there are going to be some people who, because their minds are like engineers, they follow the logic that's in a book like Romans or Hebrews or Galatians. And they love it, don't like the stories quite as much. And then you'll have people who are poets and musicians. And if you do the Psalms well, it'll make their hearts sing. That's the reason for exploiting those different kinds of genres. Those So whether you're leading a women's Bible study, men's Bible study, whatever it happens to be, if you're preaching regularly... Each particular literary genre has its own rhetorical impact and there are going to be people in your congregation who are going to respond best to different kinds. So you want to, you want to take advantage of those literary genres. Praise God, God didn't drop the Bible down in the form of a systematic theology textbook. Why wouldn't that be dull? Okay. So, you know what? I can teach my child, you must not bear false witness against your neighbor. Is that true? Is it right for me to teach my children? Yes. Right? If that's all the information they had about lying, would that be enough? But I can also tell them the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They need both. You see? Different literary genre. Law, story. Need both. And you know what? It's not just true for children. It's true for adults. So it's wonderful that God has given us the Bible like that. Okay? So, preparation. Now we move into what I've called, others have called, it's not unique with me, friends. Observation. Observation observation what do I mean by this step what does this book what does this passage say I'm asking questions about this passage I'm just reading it over and over and over and over and over now what am I trying to observe in the process number one I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about literary analysis. What style of writing am I studying? Is this a parable? Because you don't interpret parables the same way you interpret Romans. Is this a narrative? Because you don't interpret narratives the same way you interpret Proverbs. Is this epistle? Is it poetry? Is it apocalyptic? Each particular genre requires a different approach. Okay, And here's where your Gordon Fee book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, will prove to be of great help to you. So there are narratives. By the way, two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. Probably tells you something about how God expects us to learn. Narrative. There is wisdom literature. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. There's prophetic literature. And by the, this, I'm talking about the Old Testament Prophets. You're talking about apocalyptic literature, which is its own beast that we have nothing in the English language to compare to. That's why it's so hard for us. There are letters. So I've got to ask myself, what kind of writing am I studying? And what are the unique things to keep in mind as I study this kind of writing? It reminds us, friends, that the Bible is both a divine and a human book, just like Jesus Jesus is both divine and human. It's what we call in theological circles the hypostatic union. Two natures in one person. Fully divine, fully human. You say, how does that work out? I have no idea. The Bible teaches it. And the Bible itself is very much that way. Is this a divine book? Yes. Is it a human book? Oh, profoundly so. It has literary forms that indicate that a Bible writer had certain agendas in mind. His own style comes out. His own literary skills come out or don't come out. You want glorious, glorious Greek? You read the book of Hebrews. You want Greek that is absolutely street-level Greek, not very good? Read First Peter. Okay? You want very, very simple elementary Greek? You go to the Gospel of John. You want very technical Greek that, with words that you won't find anywhere else in all the Bible? Book of Hebrews. Okay? Very human and divine. And part of understanding the humanity of the Bible is asking, what are its literary uniquenesses? What style of writing am I writing? Okay, under observation. Secondly, then you also want to do background study. You want to do background study. This gets at what we talked about a little bit before. But you want to use what has been called a Bible introduction. Do you happen to have one here, Ryan, in your office? Like a New Testament introduction, Old Testament introduction, New Testament survey? You got something like that? Could you, you got it here? Would you mind? I can just show it. Let me. Let, it, what, it, what it is, it's a book that gives you the background, really, to each one. If it's a New Testament introduction, it gives you a background to each one of the New Testament books. So maybe there are 25 pages about the background of the book of Philippians. What do we know about Philippi? Well, it's a town where Roman garrisons were located. It's a Roman outpost, Philippi is. So when Paul says in chapter 4... Let the peace of God guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He's using the Greek word there that means a garrison. His Philippian readers would would have that image in front of them. Roman garrisons were all around them. Like a Roman garrison. Let the peace of God guard your heart against all intruders. See Uh, What's going on in Corinth? What's life like in Corinth? We we, we actually have a church in the town that I grew up in that called itself... uh, First Corinthian Church of Vallejo, California. And I thought, my goodness, have they ever read First Corinthians? Why would you ever want to take that name for your church? They had every weirdo deal going on under the sun there, huh? But but you need to know those things you see before you start to jump in, um, and you want to ask yourself the questions that I have here. You want to ask yourself who's the author, and uh, I don't know five or six pages in on this packet that I gave you, page ten. Getting to know the author of a book, you, you just want to you want to know you you want to know some things about the person who wrote this book. That's going to have bearing on some of the things that he says. Some of these questions you won't be able to answer because we just don't have that information. Some we will. So we're dealing with First Corinthians. Well, his name is Paul. He's the meaning of his name. What was his name changed to? Well, it was Saul, got translated to Paul. Why? Well, what else can I know about him? Do I know anything about his parents? Do I know anything about the kind of family he came from? What kind of training did he have? The guy had equivalent of a PhD in his time, student of Gamaliel. What do I know about his background from the line of Benjamin? What, what does that tell me? So I just, want I want to be able to unpack who this author is. Okay, secondly, I want to ask the question, and this is huge, what compelled him to write this book? Remember, we talked about 1 John, we talked about 1 Timothy, we talked about the Gospel of John. Somebody turn to Jude, okay? Somebody turn to Jude. Jude, right before the book of Revelation. you got to ask yourself, what compelled Peter to write this book? I'm studying 1 Peter... Why is he writing this? Why is the book of Hebrews written? the book, A book of Hebrews, huh? Which has five of the strongest warning passages that you will find in the entire word of God. I mean, scary, scary warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Why is he writing that? Oh, because these Hebrew Christians have now not only begun to experience persecution from the Roman government, they're experiencing persecution from their Jewish relatives who have not converted to Christianity, who are now ostracizing their Jewish Christian family members. And some of these Christians are thinking to themselves, you know what, things were a lot safer when we were in Judaism. Maybe we ought to go back to Judaism. That's the question that provokes the writing of the book of Hebrews. That's the question he's answering. And basically he's saying, you can't go back. You can't go back. Why? Jesus is better than everything and everyone. had to be careful. I don't to preach my sermon tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But that's what's going on in the book of Hebrews. You, you need to know that before you get to the text. So take this glorious book of Jude. Listen. was someone have verse 3? Someone have verse 3? Go ahead. Would you read it nice and loudly? He left while well, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Stop right there. While well, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you a letter about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Now we have two books in the Bible that are primarily devoted to the doctrine of soteriology. What are they? And Galatians, Romans Galatians. It would have been wonderful to have another letter inspired by the Spirit about the doctrine of soteriology. Moreover, who is the writer of this book? And who is Jude? He's the half-brother of Jesus. I would have loved to have had another letter on soteriology from the brother of Jesus. But but notice now what he says. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay. He said, I wanted to write to you a letter about soteriology, salvation. But by virtue of the need, I've got to write to you telling you that you need to contend, fight for the faith, meaning the content of Christianity. I'm I'm writing to urge you to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He tells him. Right there in verse 3, this is why I'm writing. You need to know why a writer is writing. Yeah, here's, here's one of these kinds of New Testament introductions, okay? There are others that are not nearly so beefy, okay? Um, but they're called New Testament introductions. And some of you some of you people who are far more sophisticated on computers than I am, huh? You can buy these packages that have a lot of these tools on there. But let's say you're going to study the book of Galatians. You open to what Donald Guthrie says about Galatians. He may have 50 pages on Galatians. Background of what's going on, the struggle. What's going on in Galatia, by the way? Churches in the Galatian region. What issues are they struggling with? Which means? And in their particular context, what form was it taking? Were they saying to people, you can't watch TV if you're going to be a Christian? Yeah. You've got to become a Jew if you're going to become a Christian. You've got to become a Jew if you're going to become a Christian, right? right. And, and so that, you, again, you need to know what the background is, what it is that compels Paul to write. Um, what we say is like this, and forgive me for being so formal. The books of the Bible, particularly the letters, are occasional. What we mean is <coughs> they were drawn out by certain occasions, needs, concerns, false doctrine, trouble in the church, they were occasioned by some need. Paul just didn't say there one night as he was laying around thinking about what to do, You know, I think I'll write a book about uh, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. I oh, don't know. Timothy's having trouble in Ephesus. Timothy, my young child in the faith. Not like Titus. Titus is a bulldog. That's why I sent him to Crete. Timothy, weak stomach, nervous, timid. He's got stuff going on in Ephesus i got to write a letter to him to help him talk about how life is to be in the body of Christ. you got to know that, friends, before you open up your Bible and start reading, okay? So what compelled the author to write? Thank you, Ryan, for getting that. Um, um, does he have a specific purpose? Was there a problem he intended to solve? When did he write it? Very often people have tried to position the book of James and the book of... Romans or Galatians against each other. Why is that? Anybody know? On the surface of things, it looks like what? They contradict. Paul seems to be saying that we are saved by grace apart from any works. And James says, if you ain't got works, you ain't got faith. Huh? They're saying the same thing from different vantage points, dealing with two different kinds of problems. And if you don't know that when you read it, you're going to say, ooh, 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 I don't like James. And there's a whole stream of biblical truth that you'll miss as a result of saying, I don't like it. I don't like that obedience stuff. Even Luther said that James didn't need the Bible. Well, Luther, Luther, Luther questioned whether or not it did, whether or not James actually belonged in the Bible, had questions about James. He had questions about some other books too, but yeah. So where was he when he wrote it? When Paul wrote Philippians, he was in jail. He was in jail, which has profound implications on everything he says about joy. Who is he writing to and what are their cultural uniquenesses? What in the world is he talking about when he talks about meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Well, you've got to know the background on that, right? Okay, and four, what is or what are the key themes of the book? What are the key themes of the book? Starting to ask yourself those questions, huh? If you decide, okay, I'm going to work through Philippians. What are the key themes here? Or I'm in 1 Corinthians. What are the key themes? Um, so this is all observation. This is what you're doing early on, understanding the background. Who wrote it? Why he wrote it? To whom was he writing? What are his major issues? C, now, is it C? No, three. Immersion in the text. Read through the entire book. Let's say you're taking a book like Philippians, Colossians. Read through the entire book in one sitting on several different occasions. Do, do this to feel the pulse of the author. Now, let me tell you what I'm telling my students to do, and I would strongly encourage you. Uh, Ryan's wife is doing First Peter. Uh, if you're going to work through a book, let me suggest particularly a letter. Take your computer program where you've got First Peter. Cut it. And paste it into a Word document. Take out all of the chapter headings. Take out all of the verse headings. So all you have is text on a piece of paper. And just read it like that. That's the way it was written. It's a letter. And sometimes our translators put chapter and verse designations in terrible places. That actually work against understanding the Bible well. So take out all those numbers, take out the chapter headings, the verse headings, all the little kind of summary statements at the top so that you have a piece of paper with nothing but the text and read it in one sitting just the way it was intended to be read when it was first written. And you know what will happen? You'll start seeing the big ideas for yourself. You'll start seeing where he finishes this argument, starts another argument. And you start marking out those areas for yourself. You start seeing the little divisions and subdivisions and all those kinds of things. You haven't even opened up a commentary yet. You don't need to open up a commentary. Right? And just read it over and over and over. The big ideas of the book will start jumping off the page. You do think I've read this a thousand times before? I've got anything more I can learn from this? Oh. You just read it over and over. And then what I suggest you do then is you make an outline of the book. Dividing it into its major divisions. You give it its own chapter headings. Now, you're not going to teach from what you're doing. People are going to have Bibles in front of them. But this way, you'll get a handle on what the book is saying. So you want to make your own outline. Your own divisions. List the key verses. Oh, by the way, friends, sorry, I forgot. You put it on the paper like that and you read it in one sitting. Can I tell you something that I was taught to do about two years ago? I've started to do it my devotional time. made a huge difference. Read it out loud. I found that to be of enormous help. Read it out loud. So that now my devotional reading, I do all my devotional reading out loud. Uh, It was designed to be heard. There weren't printing presses, so they were printing off copies of 1 Peter. Come get your copy of 1 Peter. And all they all gathered and heard it read. It was designed to be heard. Read it out loud to yourself. Start listing off the key verses. List off the major themes. What are the real big ideas? Are there any repeated phrases? So, for example, remember that passage I told you my student told me about? Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. Has nothing to do with servanthood. There's a refrain that appears three times. Each time mentioned after a work of one of the members of the Trinity. Talks about God the Father. And it ends by saying, to the praise of his glory. Talks about the work of God the Son. It ends to the praise of his glory. Two verses about the Holy Spirit ends to the praise of his glory. It's a song. It was a hymn in the early church. So you want to look for those repeated f- refrains, What's one of the repeated words over and over and over again in the Gospel of John? You're gonna, you going to huh? Light. light, Huge in the Gospel of John. What else? Even more than light. Believe. Believe. Well, you, 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 you start circling those words that appear over and over again, you'll quickly figure, uh, I think the author wants to say something here, I think he's trying to say something. Believe.? Huh? Light. The Book of Ruth. Redeem, Redemption. Over and over and over again. List any names that are used to speak of God, Christ, the Holy Spirit. List any of the attributes of God that are mentioned. Love, justice, mercy, kindness, patience, righteousness. Are any per- prominent doctrines mentioned here? Boy, there's some giant doctrines in First Peter. You ladies who are studying 1 Peter, some huge doctrines in 1 Peter are there any principles for Christian living? Oh man, there are some huge principles for Christian living in 1 Peter. Huh? The other thing in again this is early on in the study process, ask as many questions of the text as possible. You haven't even opened up a commentary. You don't need a commentary, friends, honestly. You, you do, I'm exaggerating. But, but you're not even opening it till you're far down the process, right? So you've got First Peter typed up, all the divisions are gone, it's just a letter. You're starting to see your own divisions. You're starting to mark out the names that are used to speak of God, the attributes of God that are mentioned, the prominent themes, key doctrines. And all along the process of studying, you're keeping another piece of paper over here, writing out all the questions that what you're reading sparks. Huh. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? What? <clears throat> Ronald Allen used to be on our faculty at Western. World-class Hebrew scholar. You go into his class, and this is what he says the first day. Book of Ruth, four chapters. Come back a week from today. Bring me a 100 questions from the book of Ruth. You think, four chapters? 100 questions. No way. Students come back the next week, got a 100 questions. Thank you. Come back next week. 100 questions, 100 more questions, 200 questions. I, I guarantee you, friends, you jot down all the questions about everything you see in First Peter, and you answer those questions, you're not going to need a commentary. Just go through the text you're studying and just write down every question that's stimulated in your mind about that text. Then you've got to answer those questions. You'll know what the text means when you're done. Okay, Ask as many questions of the text as you possibly can. And then you want to start taking note of any other observations, huh? Are there promises? Are there warnings? Are there encouragements? Are there commands? This is all in the observation process, okay? So preparation, observation, thirdly, interpretation. Ryan, I need to have you help me decide what we're gonna do here, okay? We could move through all of this pretty quickly and probably finish with enough time to take a break and then give everybody assignment to do, fool the route that come back and kind of gather our thoughts, or we could move through this stuff a little more slowly but not have time for that assignment. Let's get through your with time left for the assignment? Because I, I think we can do it, I think. I think we can do it. Can, can you get, Give me another 15 minutes, okay? Let's see how far we go, okay? I, just, I, want, I want you to make the final call. Okay, so preparation, observation, now interpretation. Now you're answering the question, what does this passage mean by what it says? Now, the first several things that are on your list, friends, I, I'm, I'm not going to bother you with those today, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to bother you with certain things. There are some things I do want to draw your attention to. Under interpretation, um, notice point three. If I'm going through a particular passage and I come across a word like propitiation, I've got to be able to figure out what that word means. So somehow I've got to be able to access tools that will give me an understanding of that word, not only in English, but more importantly, what that word meant in Greek. Okay. There are computer tools and other tools that you can get that even if you don't, if you, even if you don't know anything about Greek, there are certain tools that you can access um, uh, that can help you to figure that out. But what's even more important now is you want to trace how that word is used in that particular book. Let me give you an example. If you've been a Christian as long as I've been a Christian, do you remember this little chorus? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. You remember that? Some of you remember that? No? You're not helping me there. You're sitting there going yeah. Yeah? yeah, yeah? That we should be called the Sons of God. Sons of God. That's taken out of first John chapter three. But there's a major mistake there because John says that we should be called the children of God. Technia. He doesn't use the word Uyas son. You know why? Because in the Gospel of John and the writings of John, the word son is only used ever to refer to one person, Jesus Christ. In the, go- in the writings of John, son always has divine overtones. Paul uses son all the time. Dipsy writers use words in different ways. So if I'm, uh, if I'm studying John and I come across the word son, I want to say, how does John use this word? And I discover every time he uses it to speak of Jesus never uses it to speak of believers. So I know this word has freight connected to it that is far more than just how I might ordinarily think of it. So watching, and this is where you need an English concordance, right? And so you look up the word son, and every time it's used in the writings of John, you open up your Bible, you look at those, and you pretty soon, all by yourself, without ever opening a word study book, you're going to figure out what that word means by how it's used. That's what good word study is. So, for example, the word called in Matthew is something akin to invite. Many are called if you were chosen. In Paul, called means something way more. Called means you were irresistibly brought to faith in Christ. See, how do you know that? You don't need to look up a word study book. You just chase the word call through all of the writings of Paul, and you realize he means something way different than what Matthew means. See? So... A concordance can be a really, really helpful tool for you in your study. So you're marking out those particular key words and then you're chasing them down within the book you're studying. How is Peter using this word? How does John use the word love? How does John use the word light? What's the most frequently used word in the book of Hebrews? Better. Jesus is better than everything. Better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the Old Covenant, better than the priesthood, better, 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 over and over and over and over and over, and over again. See? So you come across a word, you circle that word, say, I've got to figure out what this word means, and the first thing you want to do is pull a concordance off your sh- shelf and say, where... Now, some of you guys with these really high-powered computer programs, you just kind of press the marker on the word and boom, they all come up right there. It's great. Do you do that kind of thing, Ryan? Compromiser. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> no. Uh, it's a, for me it's an old dog new tricks kind of kind of deal. Ryan can can you give a word about these these computer programs? Do all these folks know about that stuff? I don't all my students do but I don't know. I don't know. So so if you were to tell them an entry level kind of computer program that would give them some of these tools Well there's free stuff online these stored yeah. free um- So you can tell them how to access this stuff huh if they come to you and say yeah. can I get a concordance on my computer Yeah I- you- Okay. Uh, there's just, yeah, there's tons of free stuff. Okay. I rarely tell people to buy it so much free. Okay. So for those of you who are... I'm a book guy. You know, you could... I, I'm exaggerating a bit, but not really. If you go into my office, you put a blindfold on me, and you take a book and you put it in front of my nose, I'll be able to... Bauer, Art and Gingrich, Greek lexicon. I mean, I, I just, I love books. I love the feel. I go into a bookstore and I start to salivate, you know. Uh, I just, I could never give them up. But there are some of you who are just really computer literate that could probably do in half the time what I do with books. Huh? So find out. From, you can access that stuff, okay? All right. Um, that's the best way to do word studies, guys. That's the best way to do word studies. Just trace its usage throughout a biblical writer's corpus. Okay? How does Luke use this word? How does John use this word? How does Paul use this word? Knowing that each writer uses those words in different ways. What you want to be careful not to do is to import Paul's view of call on Matthew. Because Matthew doesn't mean the same thing. doesn't mean they're contradictory. They just use words in different ways. So that's why I said to you earlier: always be hesitant of the person who says "phileo" always means no, no. Okay, all right. Hmm. By the way, for example, to even take the word "saved," salvation, save, saved. Do you realize sometimes salvation is talked of as a past event? Sometimes it's talked about as a present event. Sometimes it's talked about as a future event. So what is salvation? Something that's happened, is happening, or is, or will happen. Different writers use it in different ways to mean different things. Okay, so you want to look up these words. Now, the other thing I want you to see, point four, I told you this earlier. What insights can be gleaned from the verbs? You want to find those action words. Those action words. So, friends, open your Bibles to Matthew 28. Open your Bible to Matthew 28. Say, I don't even need to open my Bible to Matthew 28. I already know exactly what it is. It's a great commission. Will someone nice and loudly please read the great commission? Them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit them to observe all things I have you. And, hello, I am with you always very good so i told you find the verbs find the verbs the big idea is always contained. the primary idea is always contained in a verb so friends let's identify the verbs there what are they okay someone said go what else teach make. make give them. Make. what else Baptize. What else? Teach. Teach. Anything else? Obey. obey. <coughs> Anything else? Observe. Well, obey, observe. Mask. Okay. Okay. Would given be one? Are we just... Going give, we're given. All authority has been... Has been yeah. I am into from starting at the word go. Oh. Okay. Sorry. I just want to illustrate a point for you. You guys listed all these as verbs. You realize there is only... Don't speak, Ryan. There is only... <laughs> one verb in all of that. Only one. No. No. You've got one verb in the Greek text. So that when someone stands up and says, today I'm going to preach the Great Commission. Number one, go. Number two, make disciples. Number three, baptize. Number four, teach. You've just mishandled the Word of God. You have one verb. One command. One. That's it. Nope. Back to the diagram. Second person plural. Y'all. Here's the main verb. Only one verb. Make disciples. That's the main verb. And then we have three participles. The first one literally is having gone, aorist participle, baptizing, teaching. Okay? The Great Commission is not go do four things. The Great Commission is do this, This tells you how you do this. How do we make disciples? One, having gone, meaning meaning Jesus... No, this is an aorist participle. He's not saying go do it. He says you've already gone. In other words, the implication is you're already mixing it up with the world. You're already engaged with it. The assumption on the part of Jesus is you're already actively engaged with worldly people. No isolated kind of Christianity here. No doing everything we can to keep our kids out of the world here. No, the implication is you are already mixing it up with the world. Having gone that also you. while you're going, yes. Baptizing, implying what? I preach the gospel. They hear. They respond. I baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I spend the rest of their lives teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. So that making disciples and making decisions are two totally different things. This is a lifelong process. So we don't have four things in the Great Commission. We have one thing and three participles that tell us how we accomplish that. Knowing a little bit about where the verbs are. What's the verb? What's the verb? What's the verb? And those computer programs, you click on a word, and it'll say verb, or it'll say participle. So you know it's not a verb. The big idea is always in the verb, okay? Always find the verbs. Okay? What insights can be gleaned from the sentence structure? And we've already talked about this. You've got to be able to find the subject and the object of the verb. God so loved the world. God is the subject. Loved is the verb. The world is the object. Okay? Um, You want to be able to pick apart a sentence. And what's so crucial here now, and this is huge Pay attention to the connective words. Logical connectors. So that when you come across and, that indicates a continuation of an idea. By the way, by the way guys, uh, this is huge. I'm sorry I forgot to tell you this. Make sure that when you're studying, may- maybe not when you're teaching. Huh? Make sure when you're studying, if you're going to study like this. And-, and you're not reading the Greek text or the Hebrew text. Make sure you're studying from the most literal English translation you can find. So that while you may, for example, you may teach using the NIV or whatever you're comfortable with using, you probably don't want to study from the NIV because the NIV tends to leave out tons of these logical connectors. They just leave them out. Okay? So, for example, in the Greek text, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, only one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. But the NIV puts periods and starts new sentences. Makes it easier to read, but it destroys the meaning of the section. You see, you see what I'm saying? It's not three sentences, four sentences, five sentences. It's one sentence. And so little words are often taken out. So, remember that sheet I told you to print out? You got 1 Peter with all the verses and chapter headings taken out, just a letter? You want to take a little pen, and you want to circle all the little logical connectors. Because that will unpack the meaning for it, the meaning of the passage for you quite easily. So, and indicates a continuation of an idea, but... Shows a contrast between ideas. For gives a reason or an explanation for a statement. Because indicates the cause of something. Then or therefore brings a previous idea to a logical conclusion. That or in order that. So that introduces a purpose. If introduces a condition. So you want to be... Turn to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. These are everywhere, everywhere. So if you don't want to mess up your Bible with all kinds of lines and circles and all kinds of weird things, print this off on a piece of paper, take out the verse and chapter designations, and just circle the little words. So we come to chapter 2, verse 1. And, which means we can't begin there. Okay? Okay. But We can't go backwards at this point now, huh? But, but that tells you that, that this is building on what he's just said. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for, oh, this is why I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for, here's the explanation, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and, continues the idea, him crucified. And, continuing the idea, I was with you in weakness, and, continuing the idea, in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but introduces contrast. They weren't in certain things, but they were in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? Here's the reason. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but contrast in the power of God. You can understand the meaning of the passage if all you do is chase down the little words, circle them, and understand what they each mean. For introduces an explanation, but introduces a contrast. That introduces purpose or result, therefore brings an argument to its logical conclusion, and continues an idea if introduces a condition. You see how that works, friends? You still haven't even opened a commentary. You can write your own commentary if you do this stuff. Okay, what else am I asking during this section called interpretation? I'm asking myself now, what are the relationships between this verse that I'm looking at or this paragraph I'm looking at and what has preceded and what has followed? I always want to read the Bible backward and forward. I always want to read the Bible backward and forward. So if I'm looking at a particular passage, I'm saying, what's come before that has led me to this point? What comes after it that builds upon it? What are the relationships between this verse or paragraph and what has preceded and what has followed? Remember those circles of context. Context is king. Context is king. So like we saw in Ephesians 5, wonderful teaching about wives, husbands, Children, parents, slaves, masters, but all of it is preceded by the filling of the Holy Spirit and is dependent upon it. Okay? And then what you want to do after you've done all this is you want to paraphrase the passage in your own words. And then you want to begin to list out the principles that are set forth in that passage. Boy, there are some, some things that are said here about husbands. First Peter 3. There are some things that are said here about wives. There are some things that are said here about suffering. There are some things that are said here about church leadership. This is a step called interpretation you still haven't opened a commentary. I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, your Bible study will be so much more fun if instead of sitting down to study to prepare for your Sunday school class or Bible study, instead of saying, I'm going to reach off the shelf and see what Kent Hughes says. I'm going to see what Matthew Henry says. I'm going to see what Warren Weersby says. I'm going to see what John MacArthur says. Resist that. You do all of these steps and you will learn it for yourself. Your experience will be far more delightful. Your passion for the text will be... Much greater than if you just read what someone else says about it and you write it down. Okay? Is there a place for commentary? Yeah, in a minute. I'm going to show you that. Ryan. Well it's like I said early on this morning, that one tenth of the iceberg is above the water. And a good teacher learns what to leave in his study. That's the difference between a good teacher and a mediocre teacher who both work hard is that the mediocre teacher shows too much of the iceberg. Okay? So that there are things I know about the Greek text that I am not going to bother you with tomorrow morning. But if there happens to be a cocky little Western seminary student sitting in the congregation, and he says to me on the way out the door, "Well, how'd you get that, Prof?" I can say, "Well, let's open up your Greek text right now, and I will show you." Sucker. No. <laughs> uh, uh, so that, so that, uh, so that what I want to give to you, what I want to give to you, are my findings, as those findings. Give credibility to the application I make. Okay, so what I think about is the image of a doctor with his black bag. I got a black bag with a bunch of tools in there, but you ain't ever going to see them. And we get into trouble when we show off our tools, right? So we talk about literary genre, and I said there's a whole set of principles for interpreting each literary genre. You're never going to hear that from me when I preach. I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> if I'm preaching a psalm, I'm just going to preach a psalm. Now I've applied all those tools to the psalm, but you're not going to hear about that in a sermon. I've understood what the Greek construction of this sentence is, but that's not going to come out when I preach. A discerning person might be able to tell, ooh, there's some Greek grammatical things going on here that art isn't telling us. But in my mind, that's not what preaching is for. That's what we're doing here. That's what I do in my study. And when I'm training men, I train them, this is how you get to where you need to be. But in the actual act of teaching or preaching, that stays hidden. and sometimes you're so excited about what you're learning, you end up dumping way more than your listeners need. So, I don't know, Ryan, if that's enough, huh? I mean, are there something in particular you wanted to say about that? Yeah, so you just, again, uh, um, I have to ask myself, is, is this part of the iceberg that needs to be under the water? okay. So, and you can imagine, if I'm going to give a 40 or 45 minute sermon and I've spent 20 hours preparing that sermon, I mean, you were just getting the absolute tip, the nub, that in my mind is essential for you in this passage, that all the rest of it, I needed to do the work, you didn't need to see it. Okay? All right. So that's interpretation. We'll move through the last couple of steps very quickly. Correlation. What do I mean by this? You're asking one big question. How does the rest of the scripture illuminate this passage? So you come across Jesus saying in Matthew 5, if a man divorces his wife for a reason other than pornea, he makes his wife commit adultery. So i got to work hard at that passage. But what I also realize is that doesn't say all that needs to be said about divorce. I've got to look at Matthew 5, Matthew 19, I've got to look at Mark 10, I've got to look at Luke, I forgot what it is, 13, 16. I've got to look at First Corinthians 7, I've got to look at Deuteronomy 24. What's the value of doing that? I know the Bible will never ever be contradictory because the Holy Spirit is the author. And so if I arrive at a particular truth and it is at dead cross purposes with something here, then I'm wrong. I've got to go back and start over again. That's the reason for looking at what the rest of the scripture says. If you've arrived at something that is, aw- that, that is at odds with something that has clearly been taught somewhere else, you know you've made a mistake somewhere. That's the value of this step, huh? It's what, it's what uh, our ancestors called the analogy of the faith. Is that the scripture is its own best interpreter, okay? So Titus says, women are to be keepers of the home. But if all we do is say that that's all a woman could do, can do, should do, then we've way overstepped the boundaries of what the Bible says. Because the Bible says a lot more about what women do. Um, So you want to ask yourself, what does the rest of the scripture say? Here's where a concordance is going to be helpful to you. A wonderful, wonderful tool called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. A, oh, that's just a glorious tool that's keyed to every single verse in the Bible and, and references to, to other passages that, to, that relate to what you're looking at. Okay? Again, that's something I bet you could probably get for free online. Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Okay? Fifth Examination. Preparation, observation, interpretation, correlation, examination. What do I mean by this? Now I open a commentary. And why? As it checks and balances to what I myself have discovered. That's what a commentary serves. It's a checks and balances to my own conclusion. And I may pull Kent Hughes off the shelf and go, Whoa, how did I miss that? Or, boy, I arrived at a totally different conclusion. Why? He may be right, I may be wrong. You know what? I may be right and he may be wrong. So that when his interpretation is across purposes with mine, i got to figure out why. So that's a checks and balances. Or maybe, maybe I come across something in the commentary that's in the text that I just completely missed. I go, oh, how did I miss that? I, I can't leave that out. So there's the value, you see. But you've done all your work. You've done all your work. You've experienced the joy of discovery yourself. Now you're looking at a commentary. And by the way, friends, just because something in print doesn't mean it's a good commentary. There are good commentaries and there are worthless commentaries. So what you want to do is before you, if you're like me and you have limited resources, before you dump out all your money on a commentary, talk to people who know something about commentaries. And say, you know what, I'm going to be studying Colossians, Ryan. What's the best thing you'd tell me to get on Colossians? What's the best thing you'd tell me to get on the Gospel of John? What's the best thing you'd tell me to get on the book of Ruth? Okay? Um, so you only need one or two good commentaries. And there are different kinds of commentaries. I've listed them for you here. I won't bother you with that now. Okay? You can look at that at your leisure. Finally, Application. Application. How should the truth of this passage influence my life, my attitudes, my actions? What are the contemporary implications of this truth? You know what? Here's a very important thing. You must understand that application should not be confined to the realm of things to do. Sometimes the passage isn't telling you to do anything. Sometimes the passage is telling you something to believe. Okay? So, where does application begin? Though the scripture was not written to me... It was written to the Philippians or the Colossians or whoever. It has been written for me. Now that I understand what the passage means by what it says, and keeping the stated purpose of the scripture in mind, that is life change, I must ask myself this practical question. What is the price of ignoring this truth? I'll tell you something, friends. This fans my flame faster than anything else. Tonight, When I go into my room, I'm I'm staying in a wonderful place, Stuart and Alicia's home. Tonight, when the evening's over, and I go into my room about 8 or 8.30, this is the question I'm going to ask myself on your behalf tomorrow. What if Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 3 were stripped out of the Bible? How would the people of Calvary Chapel of Crook County be deficient if Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 were not in the Bible? That has a wonderful way of firing my motivation. What is the price of ignoring this truth, the truth that's in the passage you've studied? How would my life be different without it? Why do the people need to hear this? How will it profit them if they hear and respond? Okay? Interpretation asks the question, what does it mean? Application, what does it mean to me? But you can't get to application until you first do interpretation. It can't mean to you what it didn't mean then, Remember? So, here are some questions to help you discover application. Are there commands to obey? Are there promises to hold to? How convenient that all these are 1 Peter references, huh? Are there truths to know? Are there actions to take? Are there sins to forsake? Are there examples to follow? By the way... Just because something is recorded in the Bible does not mean it is an example for you to follow. It was a nonsense of what would Jesus do. What a ridiculous thing. What would Jesus do? What? Who can know what he would have done? Moreover, there are things Jesus did that you ought never to do. The preoccupation of the Bible is not what would Jesus do. The preoccupation with the Bible is what has Jesus done. One is moralism. The other is gospel. Okay? Just because it's recorded in the Bible doesn't mean you ought to do it. So just because Gideon lays a fleece down on the ground doesn't mean that that is the way for you and I to discern the will of God. We have to go to other scriptures to find out if what Gideon did is legitimate. Inspiration only means that what is recorded there is an accurate and inerrant account, not that it should be followed. What did Naomi tell Ruth to do? Tonight, after Boaz has eaten and after he has drunk, And he doesn't mean Kool-Aid. In the middle of the night, when it's dark, you go lay down at the threshing floor and uncover at his feet. How come moms don't give that as an example for their daughters? (laughs) Just because it's recorded in the Bible doesn't mean it's an example for you to follow. Okay? Are there things to avoid? Are there truths about God? New thoughts about God, His character, and by that I mean new to you. And the last thing, then, friends, is I want to think about categories of people. Categories of people. Who am I going to be talking to? Are there men here? Women? Parents? Are there collegians? Are there employers? Are there singles? Are there couples? Are there single parents? Are there widows? Are there businessmen? So from time to time, let me share this little exercise and then we're done. And we're done. We can give you a fun little assignment. Often on a left-hand column, think about the people of my congregation. And you would need to think about it. If you've got a group of uh, sixth-grade boys you got a group of women. you got a group of junior high school students. In Ryan's case, you're talking about a whole congregation. On the left side, I want to think about my people and list the kinds of spiritual conditions that are there. Have I got unsafe people who will be listening to me? Uh, yeah. Have I got people who are spiritually mature? Yeah. Have I got people who are apathetic about spiritual things? Uh, yeah. Have I got people who are... Uh, uh, backslidden uh, or compromised so in this category I'm listing all of the spiritual conditions that are indicative of the people to whom I'm speaking so Crook, County, Calvary, Chapel Ryan lists all the spiritual conditions as he thinks about all the very spiritual conditions represented in this congregation then across the top he wants to list categories of people do I have junior high school students Do I have senior adults? Do I have singles? Do I have married? So on this line, he wants to list all the conditions of people, uh, the categories of people. On this line, the spiritual conditions of people. And then what he wants to do is he wants to look at his preaching over the last month and say, Did I ever address unsaved single people? Senior people, did I ever dress backslidden singles? When is the last time I talked to people who are married and spiritually mature? When did I talk to singles who were unsaved? When is the last time I said anything in my sermon to junior hires who were apathetic? So as you think about your women's Bible study, you think about the ladies who were there, you don't create a mock list. You create a list that's reflective of the people to whom you're ministering. Spiritual conditions, categories of people. You make up your own list and you want to be able to say, as I think about application, am I speaking to the group of people who are sitting in front of me? And if there are boxes that are left unchecked, you need to think about more effective application.